Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Make Work Happy Podcast. Today, we have an exciting career paths episode for you. We're going to talk to Chad Fox, and he has an interesting career. So he started off in aerospace engineering and transitioned eventually into business. What I really like about it is that it gives you an inside look into those points of change where you say, should I keep doing what I'm doing or should I go and do something completely different? And he did that a few times and he explains what his emotion was like during it, why he decided to make the changes and how it all turned out. So stay tuned for another great episode. All right. Well, thanks, Chad, a lot for, for coming in here. Welcome to the Make Work Happy podcast. And so we're going to dive a little bit into your history. We've had a conversation. I think you have a really interesting background, especially because you've touched engineering and deeply into engineering. You've gone into the business world, um, taken a little bit of time off. So we'll get into that. So a lot of very interesting discussions. But just to start it off, um, if you just want to talk about where you're from, um, let's go back to the early days. Okay. Well, well, thanks so much, Terrence. Thanks for having me on. You know, I'm really excited to do this, and, uh, and it's, this is pretty cool what you're doing here. Um, so, you know, early days, my uh, my folks moved out to uh, Colorado from Nebraska, and uh, moved out here when I was about three years old, and um, and they wanted to kind of they were kind of entrepreneurs themselves, um, you know, back in the day, and they wanted to start their own uh, business. Um, out in Colorado, and so we moved. Uh, we moved to a little town outside of, uh, up in the mountains, outside of um, Colorado Springs. And the town had about 400 people in it, so it was pretty small. It was mostly a uh, a resort town um, for people that come out during the summer. And so a lot of the places um, didn't even have insulation in it. The the house that my parents ended up buying that I grew up in. Um, they had to rip all the all the walls off on the inside. Uh, the walls were like um, you know p- uh, pine boards, and they had to actually put up insulation. And I think that first winter we didn't have any insulation, and, and if I remember, it was, it was pretty cold. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, they they ended up starting their own business down in Manitou Springs, which was you know about 15 minutes away um, down uh, down the mountain, and. Uh, and their business started off being a, uh, a used record and tape shop. Um, wow. And, uh, you know, it, it evolved throughout the years and, and changed from that into uh, T-shirts. And then they had a wholesale silk screening business and then a, uh, a, a tourist store. Um, there was eventually like about four, four or five buildings that they had. And they had kind of like torn the walls out and, and done different stuff in between them. And was the was the inspiration for that that they were just people that were independent and wanted to start their own thing, or was there something that kicked off the the original kind of tape and you know tape store? Or well, what was the impetus? Yeah, you know, I mean, that their impetus to move from Nebraska was it was um, you know it was, it was a pretty uh, conservative community, you know, and, and my parents were a little more progressive than that, and they wanted to to come to Colorado, and um, you know, they actually had looked at Boulder. But we had an aunt that lived in Boulder, and so um, so they said, well, they didn't want to live in the same place as you know my dad's sister. So they they found this place out outside of Colorado Springs. But I think um, you know what my dad had seen was uh, was that uh, there was this this market, um, this underserved market for used records and tapes, 
where people could actually come in and and uh, put the records on and listen to them. And so he had headphones set up and, you know, and, uh, you know, like beanbag chairs and things like that, um, that you could you could um, kind of listen to the music and check it out. And, you know, his, uh, you know, philosophy was to have, you know, really knowledgeable people about music, you know, working, you know, the the store so that if they came in and they said, well, they like this kind of music, you know, the person would be like, oh, well, you know, have you checked this out or this out or something like that? And that's kind of how it how it all started. And, you know, eventually, you know, that, you know, there there came, um, you know, bigger businesses, uh, you know, bigger mega stores around that he just couldn't compete in that market. And then that's how they kind of like transitioned, you know, throughout the years to sort of different, you know, products that they sold. And they they ran the business for like 30 years or something like that before they eventually sold it. Wow. Amazing. And so then you, so you went there, um, went to high school in Manitou. Yep. And then decided you wanted to do what? Yeah. So, you know, Manitou, big high school. I had like 72 people in my graduating class. So wow, I knew massive, knew everyone in the whole school. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, you know, I was really, uh, you know, at the time I was really interested in flying and aircraft and things like that. And so, um, you know, I was looking at, uh, at schools here, you know, mainly in Colorado. Um, I'm not really sure why in retrospect, um, probably my parents were guiding me that way. They didn't want me to move too far away from home or something. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, but anyway, I looked at, I looked at like uh, CU and I looked at uh, CSU and Colorado School of Mines. Uh, but CU was really the, you know, the school that had this aerospace engineering program, which is at the time seemed really fascinating. And so, uh, so, you know, I, I ended up going to CU plus, you know, CU was, um, you know, much more diverse than, than the other schools, you know, um, than mines or CSU. Um, so that's kind of why I, I picked Boulder and, uh, you know, sort of the, the people, the culture, you know, and, um, and the program that they offered. Yeah. And so you went there for aerospace engineering? I did aerospace engineering. Um, what exactly is that? Well, you know, as a, as an undergraduate, it's a pretty diverse degree. Um, they have you study all, things from, um, you know, aircraft and airfoil design to jet engine design to, um, to space, uh, spacecraft structures, um, uh, you know, building satellites and things like that to fluid mechanics, um, to electrical engineering. They kind of give you this really broad background because, you know, in the aerospace industry, there's, you know, so many different aspects to, you know, building an airplane or building a satellite or something like that. And then, um, the, then you can kind of like specialize, you know, towards your senior year and, you know, some sort of area that's, that's of interest to you. And so I think there are two things that, uh, that I'd like to dive into a little bit there. So there's one where, so you mentioned earlier, you like to like you like flying, like the idea of flying and everything. Mm -hmm. But when I think about aerospace engineering, there's also deep mathematics, right? And so, at what point, or maybe before you went, did did you realize, you know, that it wasn't just oh, I like to fly, so let's do aerospace? And then, how much of it, I guess, was the beauty of what you'd be creating or what you'd be doing versus like you really just like math or physics or whatever the specific subjects were? Yeah. You know, I was, I was always pretty good in math and physics. I wouldn't say like that I like 
really enjoyed them a whole bunch, <laughs> you know, but, um, <laughs> um, you know, I did have some friends that just loved math. You know, I, I liked math and I was, I was pretty good at it, decent at it. And same with physics, but, you know, I think it was, yeah, you know, somewhere there probably sort of in the, you know, late freshman, you know, early sophomore year that, that I realized that, you know, this isn't, this isn't really about flying at all. You know, if you want to be a pilot, this is probably not necessarily the path. <laughs> there, there are better ways to become a pilot than to become an aerospace engineer. But if you want to design, you know, airplanes or you want to design spacecraft or satellites or, or you want to do processing of, uh, you know, the data from a spacecraft or something like that, then, then it is, you know, it is the right path. And, um, and at that point in time, I had kind of, uh, uh, I think it was my junior year, I had kind of moved over to the space side of the aerospace side and uh, started, um, started working with uh, satellites and remote sensing data and doing digital signal processing and trying to, um, you know, pull patterns out of the data um, that to do sort of recognition of, of what was going on. And um, there was like a, an environmental side to it. Um, CU had a big program that worked with, with NOAA and with NASA to do um, sort of uh, uh, geophysical um, dynamics and, and look at, you know, vegetation, um, health with satellites, or look at how the ocean circulates and where where there are warm spots and cold spots and and the whole El Nino thing was um, was just really starting to you know take off back then, and so I kind of got involved in that and and ended up uh, studying stuff you know relative to El Nino. And so, what for those that, that may not know, um, what was El Nino? So you know, El Nino comes aperiodically. You know, every um, you know anywhere can could be like you know two to like six years. It doesn't have a real well-defined period, but <clears throat> basically this, this warm tongue of water comes over from Asia and over to the South American coast. And when that happens, um, it, it kills a lot of the, uh, the, the phytoplankton, can't live in that warm water. So then the fish that feed on that, they can't live. And so you know, they've got these fishing droughts but it also causes all kinds of weird, um, you know, climatic events. So like here in North America, being a skier, typically in, in your El Nino year, you would have really, you'd have a lot more snow and that would be a great thing, right? But then in the, in the, the La Nina, the off years, you know, you, you might have a really dry year. And so back then, um, you know, they, they were just really starting to be able, uh, being able to observe that from a satellite. And, um, and my, my thesis work that I did my PhD on was, um, was actually trying to pick that signal out using the satellite and then assimilate it into a numerical model and integrate that forward and see how, it, how, it, um, how accurately we could predict what was going to happen. It's kind of like predicting, you know, the weather. Is it going to snow today? How much is it going to snow? You know, how, how much of a El Nino event is it going to be? Is it going to be strong or a weak one or whatever? Um, so, so that's kind of what that is. And you were doing all this to, in order to determine what the effect would be on the environment itself or the vegetation 
essentially, right? Is that what you were saying? Well, no, it's, uh, from satellites, you, you can look at the health of vegetation, you know, based on the moisture content. Um, back then, it wasn't really linking the effects with, um, you know, if there's an El Nino event coming, um, people hadn't really li linked the effects to, you know, what, what the severity might be. It was more of... Um, that was still just kind of in the detection phase of like, hmm. oh, look, it looks like there's going to be this El Nino event this year. We know there are some connections, um, but we don't really know what they are. And I'm sure that's um, much more fully understood today. Um, you know, but I've kind of I kind of left the science environment, you know, uh, a number of years ago. And, and so I'm not quite as up to speed on you know, what that really means, what they know today versus back then. But, you know, back then it was just kind of a, a detection and, and identification of the event. And so we'll, uh, I'll fast forward a little bit, but first, before we do that, just, I would like to get the high level, um, on the differences between you got your first year bachelor's yeah. in aerospace, then your master's in aerospace, then your PhD oh, yeah. in aerospace. So does that just get deeper and deeper and deeper and you get more specialized or what made you decide to go through that and uh, what are the differences between the three outside of just maybe deep depth? Okay. Um, so, well, the, we'll start with the reason was um, I actually ended up getting a, uh, a NASA fellowship to work on my master's and work on my PhD. And so um, my professors, you know, and friends and family would be like, were, you're, you're crazy if you don't, you know, pursue this, you know, NASA's going to pay for this. This is, this is going to be great. And so I said, well, yeah, that, that sounds really good, you know, plus, you know, I'm still hanging out here in Boulder and I can go up and go rock climbing, you know, during the summer and go skiing and, and so everything. So, you know, it, it was just kind of the, the path that, um, that seemed to be the right path at the time. And, um, <clears throat> and so to answer the, the second part of like, what's the difference? Um, your master's, you really start to focus in on, you know, one air or like one major area of specialty and then like two minor areas. And you take a, a lot of classes in those. Um, plus you also take a lot more in-depth math classes, um, doing a lot of stuff with like integration and the complex plane and a bunch of stuff that, that, you know, I don't even really remember exactly what it's all about these days, <laughs> but, um, uh, so, you know, I, I kind of specialize in this remote sensing and then this, uh, geophysical fluid dynamics and, um, and then in spacecraft dynamics and spacecraft dynamics is basically, you know, predicting where a satellite's going to fly or like, uh, I had a friend who actually worked on, um, the Galileo project, um, that sent the spacecraft to Jupiter, you know, things like that. Um, so that's kind of what the masters is. It's, it's a, it's a lot of coursework, you know, pretty, uh, pretty rigorous. And then by the time you get to your PhD, you're really not taking classes too much anymore, but you've, you've hopefully settled down on a, uh, on a thesis topic and you, you're basically just doing research. Um, you're taking a class here and there to complement, you know, what you're looking at, but you're not really taking too many classes. You're spending most of your time um, doing research and working on writing up this this thesis that you you go in front of your committee at, at the end of, you know, your whatever three or three and a half years or whatever it is and and then defend it. And, um, you know, hopefully you, you pass and everything and then um, then you can graduate and you now have a newly minted Ph.D. <laughs>
And what was your thesis on? It was uh, it was on the detection of Rossby waves um, in the world's global oceans using remote sensing and um, data assimilation. We, we won't dive too much deeper into that. <laughs> it's a if long the listeners title. would like to go and look that up, they can, <laughs> they can right. So then now you have your newly minted PhD. Uh-huh. Uh, and what did you go and do with that? So from there, um, I had the opportunity to, to do postdoc work uh, still in Boulder. Um, and it was looking at, uh, again, using the remote sensing stuff that I had done. And we were uh, looking at... Um, at uh, eddies, you know, large uh, cyclonic or anti-cyclonic features in the ocean that that go up in the Gulf of Mexico. They pinch off from the uh, the Gulf Stream and they propagate through there. Um, there, there's also ones off of the Brazilian coast. You know, they're all over. But but we were looking at those for the specific reason of um, uh, for a contract with uh, different uh, oil drilling companies. And these, these oil companies want to know when these, these eddies are moving through their oil fields um, because it, it's almost like that the power of that is like almost like a power of a hurricane. And they, you want to shut down drilling and uh, or if you're drilling new wells, you, you don't want to be doing that during that time period because you, you could have a potential you know, accident there. You know, something would break or whatever. So they, they were interested in, in us being able to predict or forecast, you know, when these things were going to come and where they were going to go so that they could, you know, determine, you know, how they're going to manage the drilling. And, uh, and so that's what I did for a couple of years, um, was, was working on that, you know, we worked with, uh, with, um, what was it? Oh, Petrobras down in Brazil. We actually had a guy come up from Brazil and he sat with us and we worked with him and stuff like that. And so that, that was kind of interesting. Wow. Um, but, uh, you know, kind of at that point, I, I decided that, you know, doing the science, you know, research and writing proposals and grants wasn't, wasn't necessarily, you know, what I wanted to do, you know, long term. Well, what, what is that? If we can go through, we don't have to go through like one example of a full grant, but just generally... What what are the different pieces of writing um, for to get a grant? What does that proposal process look like? So usually there there'll be an RFP that'll come out a request for proposal from you know some sort of a government agency um, or, or maybe a, a you know an oil company or something like that. Uh, but a lot of times these come out from NOAA and from NASA and, and other government agencies. And so what you do is they, they kind of give a an outline of what they're looking for, for research, you know, to, to do something. Um, one that I worked on, an example was for the fisheries up in the Bering Sea um, off of Alaska. And they, they too wanted to look at the eddies that were going up there. Um, but for a different purpose, uh, the, the eddies actually, um, all the phytoplankton concentrate in these eddies, you know, kind of in the core of them. And so a lot of the fish um, feed uh, off of that phytoplankton. So the, the NOAA fisheries, you know, wanted to see where these were because they wanted to go out and, uh, and do measurements in the core of these eddies and look at the, the biology and the fish and the diversity and things like that. So, you know, they put this RFP out. And so, um, I was working with, uh, with another scientist, um, who, who had been around for a while. And, and so we, we come up with this idea where we, we can predict these eddies and we can send 
send you guys the information and then you can go out and measure things. So you, you just kind of like the proposals are, are typically, you know, they're capped at like maybe 20 pages or something like that. Um, so they're not really long, but, you know, the amount of, you know, kind of scientific research you've got to do to, to have results in there to, you know, actually present some material and, and have credibility um, takes quite a quite a bit of time. And and then the language itself of actually doing the writing is, is you know, is pretty tedious and, and sort of typically very dry science writing, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> so that's sort of the process, you know, to do that. And, and it, uh, if you're a research scientist, that just is, is an ongoing process. You know, you're probably working on proposals by the same time you're working on results, you know, for a proposal that's already been funded. And it's this nonstop kind of circular uh, type thing. And so you said... No more of that. And then wh where did yep. you go into next? Yeah. So I was kind of like, well, I want to do something a little bit different. Um, so I decided I, I wanted to get back into my more my engineering roots and, and less in the science side. Um, so, you know, I was uh, began to look around and uh, ended up getting a job offer from a, uh, a large aerospace company. You know, oh, in, and actually, sorry, before we go into that, how long were you uh, doing that? Before you, you left, just to get a sense for the time here on, on the, the postdoc. On the, the postdoc, mm. I think it was it was just about two years. Okay, maybe okay. a year and a half, two years at the most. Okay, and um, and so so yeah, so sort of looking at engineering companies, I got an opportunity from a large aerospace company in uh, the Denver area that was um, that was working on the next generation weather satellites. And uh, doing algorithm development for that, and uh, and so I came on board, and uh, you know my first job was was a software engineer, and I was I was writing um, algorithms to you know determine like the thickness of sea ice from space and how old the ice was, was it new year, first year, multi year ice, um, you know kind of kind of stuff like that ba based on the the spectral um, reflectance of the, the different types of uh, microwaves that were being emitted down and, and bounced back up. Were you writing software before that, like in previous work? Or oh, yeah. This? Yeah, my whole okay. my whole thesis and probably everything from my master's on, I was writing software. Um, you know, back in, in those days, you know, we were writing mostly in, in, um, in C and Fortran, um, cause that, those were kind of the two languages that for whatever reason, uh, the science community seems to be attracted to. And, and I believe still write a lot of their software, you know, in those languages, um, which is, which is interesting. Um, I'm not sure why, uh, they haven't moved on to, to new, you know, technologies, but, um, but, um, but they haven't. And then um, I also used uh, a software program called uh, called MATLAB, um, which was really great because it was a visual. It, it, you could do a lot of matrix math under the hood, but you, then your visualization was all built right into it. So you know, back then that that was a you know a, a great piece of software that was pretty revolutionary, sort of in the science community to be able to to do something that you didn't have to write out a data structure and then read that data structure in with a different piece of software just to look at it and then find out it's all wrong. And then you got to go back and debug and figure out why. <laughs> so, um, but yeah. So, so then you're writing software for a large defense contractor, mm -hmm. um, which, so they essentially, the government 
want something to be done in this case it was weather satellites and they'd come to you or was it were you not working on purely government work or uh yeah no this was actually a um this was a joint project between NOAA and NASA and uh, and the DOD so there were there were three agencies and uh, and the government used to run um they used to have a weather satellite system for civilians through NOAA and NASA and then they had one for the military through the DOD well, so you, you had two totally independent systems that were going to be running or that had been running for years. And so I, I forget who it was, who was president at the time, but, but they, they decided that we could save money if we combine the systems and we have one system that services everyone, right? Um, great idea in principle, but trying to get uh, <laughs> these three agencies to agree on what is important and what they want not so easy to do. <laughs> yeah. um, but, but they kind of follow the same process. They, they put an RFP out and we were in competition with, uh, with another large aerospace company. Um, and, uh, and so we, you know, we ended up winning the contract. And so it was a, uh, I think at the time of the contract award, it was a $4 billion contract. And uh, the company I was working for, uh, which was developing all the ground station and the data processing side, um, was awarded $1 million of that $4 million. And so what was it like working for a defense contractor, like generally? Was it something you enjoyed? What did you enjoy <laughs> about it? Uh, I mean, it sounds like there had to have been some government headaches along the way. But at the same time, the work is unique, interesting, sometimes secretive, which can be fun. Yeah. How did you feel about it? You know, I, I'd say, you know, I was there about 10 years, you know, and I'd say that the first four or five years were, were pretty cool, pretty amazing. You know, I was, um, you know, working on the cutting edge software and, uh, you know, I, I kind of at some point transitioned from being, um, you know, a developer to a software product manager, you know, and is managing uh, a lot of different teams and uh, one of the teams I was managing um, <clears throat> was the user interface team. And so that was really cool because I got to do a lot of traveling with that. And um, I used I, I would go out and actually visit the users and they would show me, you know, what their interfaces were like now and how they were getting their data sets and what they what they didn't like about it or what they wanted to have changed in the future. And so I, I kind of, that was sort of my first taste of, you know, the business side, just a little bit of actually, you know, interfacing with, with the external customer or the end user. And, uh, and then, then, you know, to be able to come back and, um, you know, share that vision with, uh, with my teams, you know, about this is what, what they want and this is what they need. And, and to be able to, um, to see that implemented, you know, was great. Um, but, um, so th those were some of the, you know, the, the great things, you know, there were definitely some really high quality people. Um, there was, there was an abundance of funds. So if you needed more developers, you know, there was no problem. You just go, oh, we'll get more developers, <laughs> you know, it's like this endless, you know, pot of money, you know, at, at the beginning, <laughs> it wasn't that way entirely the entire time, but. So, you know, you could just throw more and more resources at it. But, you know, some of the drawbacks were um, still developing in, you know, old technologies, old languages, um, using, you know, software development, uh, you know, using a waterfall where you've got 
thousands and thousands of requirements at, at three different levels that you're developing to. And you don't actually do a demo for like two years to the end user. And, um, you know, then they, they look at it and they go, oh, well, this isn't exactly what we wanted. We wanted this, you know. And so to, to be able to, you know, use some of the more newer, uh, you know, methods you're using Scrum or something like that, you know, people brought that up. But it was, it was like, no, no, we, we can't do that. We, we have to do waterfall. That's the way all these big projects are done. Um, <laughs> so, you know, there was frustration, uh, you know, I, I started to see frustration after I'd been there for a while about sort of the bureaucracy and the risk adverse to doing things in a new or different way. Um, I think one thing that, that really was surprising to me was I wanted to use XML in, to describe the metadata of the data that I was delivering. And I had to fly to Washington like three or four times and present to uh, uh, this DOD board XML and get them to approve it and put it into their yearly document release so that we could be compliant with one requirement that we had that said that that we would follow only their their software development methodologies. <laughs> so, you know, things like that are a little crazy. And, um, <clears throat> you know, after time, it... Uh, you know, it just didn't really fit that well with me anymore where I wanted to go. I, I wanted someplace that was going to be leaner and more agile and you didn't, you know, have to do, uh, you didn't have so many hoops that you could like, um, you know, build things, um, you know, much cheaper and more efficiently and, and better. Um, you know, just one example um, before we move on, is at the time we were working on a, uh, a portable ground station that could download uh, the data directly from the satellite. And so you, you could, you know, be on the middle of a field or be over in a different country or something like that to be able to look at it. And um, this thing was going to be the size of a small trailer, you know, maybe like a, like a 20-foot trailer that you had to carry behind you in a Humvee or something like that. And I remember having discussions with, you know, some of my friends and we were like, by the time they get this done and deploy this, you're going to be able to get the weather on your phone anywhere in the world. And that's exactly what happened. <laughs> so perfect. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, you know, there's only so many of those things that, that you know, I just decided that, that I, I didn't want to want my whole career to be in that particular space. So I knew it was time to kind of move on. And so, and so that moving on was business school? Is that what was next? Yeah. So I decided I wanted to go back to business school and um, did that here um, in Colorado while, while I was still working um, at the, uh, the aerospace company. Well, was there a prompt for that? I mean, you mentioned the general reason uh -huh. you know, that you wanted to move on, but was there anything that came up said, oh, business school? is the thing that I want to do? Did someone recommend it? Or? Um, how did that come up? I, I think it was more my, my own thinking, but I, I think it was, um, I, I had such a narrowly focused technical background and, uh, and also, you know, all this experience only in defense contracting, um, trying to break out of that, um, I decided that, that maybe I, I needed 
a broader, you know, base of knowledge. And, um, you know, I, I didn't see that necessarily going and getting any, you know, more technical um, education would give me a, a broad base, but I thought business school would give me a broad base, um, you know, to learn about <clears throat> uh, marketing and finance and operations and, you know, and some legal and, you know, and all the, you know, the typical topics. Um, so that's, uh, that was sort of the impetus to, to go to, back to business school. Cause I thought that that, that would give me a, you know, more diverse education so that I, I could, you know, leave, um, you know, sort of the, the large defense contractor, you know, area and go and to do something, um, something different in a different direction. Before you went to business school, did you did you try and just go in a different direction without having something else and it didn't work? Or? I, I did. And I found that the only interviews I was getting was with other defense contractors. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like, they're like, oh, yeah, you know, you know, because there's a there's a bunch of them here in Colorado. And and uh, yeah, I could I could easily go, you know, hop from one defense contractor to another, um, which, you know, I, I did know a lot of people would do. Um, and you typically that that was good if you wanted to continue to try to seem to make more money because you'd go from one and they'd give you more and then you'd come back to the one you just left and they'd give you more. <laughs> but it wasn't necessarily about that for me. It was it was the nature of the work. And I wanted to do something that, that was more interesting and not so bureaucratic. Um, and so, you know, without it was like I said, having a hard time kind of um, getting lots of interviews that weren't outside of that aerospace world. But, you know, one thing I've noticed is that people that have, and, it's, and this is all very general, you know, this is a general statement, but a lot of people that have at least done something on the architecture side uh -huh. of engineering and then, then come over to business, more specifically even just product, mm -hmm. have such a greater, like, systematic brain. Mm -hmm. Like, you can think about things much more holistically, which I think is pretty interesting. Did you notice that, like, within yourself, I could kind of guess... That might be something that would be a strength. Yeah, you know, I, I think um, being able to look at the the big picture was something that I, that I always liked and enjoyed. And um, you know, when I was working, you know, kind of down in the weeds on the engineering part, um, you know, you, you're just looking at at such a small part of the the problem. You're not looking at the whole thing. I did actually spend a a couple years um, as an architectural manager. So software architectural manager, kind of looking at the whole system wide, you know, how do all the pieces fit together and everything like that. And so I, I do think that that gave me kind of that systems background um, that I could take forward, you know, when I eventually did leave and, and move on. Um, yeah, I, I definitely think it did. And, and so you got your MBA two years, is that standard yeah. length yeah. of time? And then, um, and then where did you, so what was the switch to? Uh, when you when you got into business, let's say, what was your first gig after business school? So the first uh, thing after business school was um, I got a job in Boulder at a uh, at a medium size, about two hundred and fifty person um, laser uh, optics uh, component manufacturing company. Um, so this is a this is a totally new industry to me i mean it's it's an actual manufacturing company where they're they're building product on the floor it's not software at all and so it's brand new to me um and so that was that was interesting that it's manufacturing they the manufacturing floor was actually in boulder and uh, they did 
the work there. Um, but my first job was, um, was basically, uh, as a product manager in, in the, in business development. And, you know, and I, I did this or I was there for about three years and I kind of went from, from that and, and they, they moved me into a business, uh, director position and an account executive position. So it was a, it was a really customer facing, um, position. Um, which was really great because I, I do enjoy uh, going and talking to the customer and finding out, you know, what their needs are, what their pain points are. Um, you know, it's also pretty exciting uh, closing a big sale. Um, that's always that's always kind of fun. Um, but uh, and, and a lot of my clients were international. And that was one thing that I wanted to to be able to do is to have um, a lot of, you know, or at least some international clients because, um, cause I do enjoy, uh, a lot of international travel and, um, we'll probably talk more about that in a bit, but, um, but even before, um, uh, that, so that, that was, well, let me see. <clears throat> so that was good to have that international exposure. But, um, the other interesting thing about it was, uh, is, having the manufacturing on the floor, uh, my job was actually very cross-functional. I didn't actually have any direct reports at this job, but I, I had to interface with all the technicians on the floor and go out there and talk to them about the products they're building and find out what's going on, um, talking to their, uh, their supervisors, working with the operations folks. I'd often have to go to finance and work with them on contracts um, or get approval from them on setting prices. Um, also working on like cost reduction initiatives. So my three years there, it was like, I touched, it seemed like I touched on every business function that I had learned about recently learned about in my MBA. Did that transition feel natural? Was it scary or what was the emotion that came or were you just excited? What was the emotional state of kind of moving from, I guess you're the MBA as a buffer, but let's just say from a work perspective, moving from the defense contract world into uh, more, sp not even software, but hardware. Yeah. It's a tough business. Well, you know, I mean, probably the, the biggest thing that was, or the scariest thing was, um, you know, these defense contractors, you know, the, the benefits that they have are great, right? You know, um, and you move to these small privately owned companies and the benefits are not that great, you know, and I was you know, running spreadsheets and look at the numbers, you know, and I'm like, you know, what's this going to be like for us? It was more from a, you know, sort of like a life perspective of being a little paranoid as far as the work perspective about the work I was going to do and things like that. Um, you know, I, I really wasn't too concerned about it. I remember when they hired me, they said, well, you know, I was, I went out to lunch with the CEO and he said, well, you know, we, we've hired some people from big companies and they come in here and they just can't, they can't adapt to this culture. It's, it's different for them. Um, and you know, they haven't worked out and they, they, he asked me, you know, do you have any concerns about that? And I, I looked him right in the eye and I said, I said, no, nope, absolutely not. I said, I, I easily transitioned from, um, academia and research science into, um, a defense contractor, which was a big change. They, they told me the same thing when I came on board there. Now, are you worried about 
leaving, you know, <laughs> you know, the white lab coat behind. And I'm like, no. And so I, you know, I just looked him in the eye and I said, I said, no, I, I have, I have complete confidence in my ability to adapt and, and, uh, and move into this role. And, um, and, you know, my last performance review, uh, my, uh, my manager told me that I was the best account manager they had in the entire company. And I'm like, and I've probably been doing it the least amount of time, but I didn't actually say that. <laughs> <laughs> so now you just came back from a, a little bit of, uh, let's just personal time. Let's say, where, where did you go? Why did you, uh, why did you decide that it was time to explore and, Let's go into that. Maybe start with the why, and then we can go into the what. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, you know, we wanted to, my wife and I, you know, we had both, um, you know, we're talking about, you know, where we were in our careers. And, you know, I had been in this new job for about three years, but I didn't see it as a, um, as a long-term um, sort of position uh, or a lot of growth or, you know, learning anything new or anything that exciting. Uh, I was basically told I could, I would be able to take on more accounts and I could grow my account base, which would, you know, grow my, you know, paycheck. But again, it's, um, it kind of goes back to what I said before. It's not necessarily about the money. It's about the work that you're doing, feeling personal satisfaction and, um, just just doing something really, you know, worthwhile that you want to do. And so not knowing really what that was, that next step was, um, I had come up with this idea that maybe we should take a year or so off and, um, and do some traveling and, uh, you know, maybe accomplish, you know, some life goals that, that each of us had and, and, uh, you know, kind of see where that goes and see, see if, you know, when we're traveling, if, um, you know, being in a different place and you're stimulated by, you know, the environment, you know, if, if you can think differently, you know, or you know, about where you're going to go next and what you're going to do. And, uh, and so that was sort of my, uh, that, I think that's the why basically. And, um, the, the first place we went, um, which had always kind of been a, I guess a life goal of mine was to spend, uh, spend a winter, uh, at a ski resort. Um, I had, you've had a long, a long time of thinking I want to be a ski bum. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> I, I had many friends who, um, uh, who, when they finished their undergraduate, did exactly that. They went up and became ski bums. Um, but I just went to grad school, and so I, I never took the opportunity to do that. And, uh, and I said, you know, I want, I want to do that, you know, at least one season in my life. So, so you went up to Canada, did that for a bit? Yeah, so I did my, my research on where to go. And um, there's, a, there's a region up in British Columbia called the, the Powder Highway. And there's a number of ski resorts up there. Sounds terrible. Yes, it's, <laughs> it is awful. You know, 35 feet of snow, maybe 40 on a good year. <laughs> um, but I found this little town called, uh, called Revelstoke. And uh, it's, um, it's right on the eastern side of British Columbia. Um, the top of the pass is, uh, is Alberta. And it's about a five-hour drive west from Calgary, if you come through that way. Um, it's pretty isolated, but it has, um, it's got the most vertical feet in North America. It's got, a, it's got over a mile. I think it's 5,600-some vertical feet from top to bottom. And so that, uh, and they've got a lot of, it's a lot of steep, you know, and trees. And, you know, like I said, 35 to 40 feet of powder. 
Um, so it was just, it was the right place. And uh, I found that and um, somehow got, got lucky or maybe it was just supposed to be, but I ended up finding a, uh, finding a, a floor to rent in a house in downtown Revelstoke, only a, only a couple <clears throat> blocks from, you know, the, the main street, you know, with all the restaurants and pubs and everything. And, um, the woman upstairs was a, uh, she, she owned the house and was an avalanche dog handler. And so we could bring our dog with us up there and, you know, she had no problem with it. She loves dogs. And so, you know, it just, it worked out really well as far as the living situation up there. And, um, and one of my goals that I had set for myself was to ski um, a million vertical feet in the year. And I was able to get <laughs> 1. 1.2. <laughs> wow. I'm not even sure. I guess I've never thought about it that way. So it sounds like an insane amount of skiing. Well, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a fair amount. <laughs> yeah. so, so now you're back. Um, what's next? So, yeah, so we, we spent that about six months up there. Um, and, uh, then, um, as we're, as our time's coming to a close, I'm trying, coming up with new ideas on, on what we should do next. And, uh, and we had, um, gotten into doing yoga quite a bit while we were up there. There was a great little studio down the street, Baloo yoga and, uh, go, you know, I'd probably go two, maybe three times a week, you know? Um, my wife would go probably more than that, but I said, uh, I said, well, why don't we, why don't we go, uh, study yoga? And she's like, Oh, well, that sounds interesting. What do you have in mind? And I said, well, let's go to India. <laughs> <laughs> Only one place to study yoga. <laughs> right. And she's like, huh? Okay. So I went off and did my research and I, I came up and I found this place uh, called Rishikesh, uh, which is North of uh, New Delhi. And it's actually where the Beatles went and lived in an ashram back in, um, I learned, in February of 1967 um, while we were there. And, uh, and it, it is supposedly the birthplace of, uh, of yoga. And, um, and the, the, uh, the Ganga runs right through the, the center of the, the town, or, uh, or as we know it in America, the Ganges, but they, they call it the Ganga. <laughs> um, so anyway, so we, we went over there and uh, we studied yoga for, um, for six months while we were there. Or not, sorry, for, I was thinking of something else. We studied yoga for, for one month while we were there. And, um, you know, when we got there, it was, uh, it was pretty interesting the the hotel or the the ashram area room that we were staying in was a little more rustic than I had thought it was going to be. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, That'll happen in India. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, but yeah. So we did that, um, and uh, and then from there we we ended up spending about another uh, month traveling around to different parts of India. Um, we went up to uh, to Kashmir to the Leh Ladakh area, which is, uh, which borders, um, Tibet up there. And, uh, it's an, it's a very interesting, it's, it's all, it's all about 11,000 feet. Um, the valleys are, and, you know, then the, then the peaks go up from there, but it's, um, it's very, very dry. 
Um, there, you know, there was like hardly any moisture. There wasn't hardly any snow on the mountains, even though they are up so, so tall. Um, but I guess it, it's like that in that area. It's just a, it's a very high desert. Well, I'm, I'm very uh, excited to see what comes next. I mean, I think what's fascinating to me, you know, when we talked before just about your story generally is that there were these, there were so many moments, not so many, but a few moments of transition, which like took real change. I mean, it's not like you move from country to country everywhere in the world or, you know, something like that, but it was, but at least from a, uh, from a work perspective, there are so many moments of change. I think it's fascinating. And I'm excited to see what you do next with all of this experience and knowledge that you have. Um, I think given that the startup scene in Boulder is just taking off, there's some fascinating possibilities. Right, right. I'm sure. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, that was the conclusion I came to is, you know, where where do I want to go next? And I, I want to get back to my software roots, um, but I want to, but I want to do that, you know, in a startup size company. Um, you know, somebody that that's, you know, working on really cool products for consumers that, that you can, you know, that the consumer can use where you, you can actually be making a big impact to somebody's life. Um, you know, I mean, if, if you've got the right product, you know, working on the defense projects, it's like, yeah, the weather satellite system is going to make people's lives better, you know, somehow, someday, somewhere, but you, you don't really see that, you, you know, because it's, it's so big and so far removed from sort of like reality. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So, well, thank you so much uh, for sharing the story. It was great to talk to you again. Um, I'm sure it'll happen again soon. So I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right, Terrence. Well, thank you so much. It was a lot of fun. And uh, boy, it looks like we, we went over a little bit in time. Yeah, a little bit, but that's okay. <laughs> it was great. Well, good. Well, good. All right. 